realize like uh, you know, 10 years you want to be ago, more I used to like be able to get along with people better. Uh, now people just annoy me because they're just truths. I'm sorry. Don't this quickly to evolved to your own therapy. I, I did not mean for the study to elicit this behavior out of you. I don't know what's happening. Welcome back and happy new year. We are attached a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Today, Jacob is going to bring us something fun and pop in culture. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article is perceived similarity more than assumed similarity, the interpersonal path to seeing similarity between self and others. And then in good or bad advice, we'll be discussing some advice from Twitter and TikTok, my very, very, very favorite. If you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us all at attachedpodcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. It goes straight to our email. So like the same, same as. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever it is, please rate and review it and also subscribe. We would love you to subscribe. But before we get to all of the goodness, welcome back, everybody. How are you doing? What's Thank up? You. How's the new year? Hey, do you guys do New Year's resolutions? No. Good to know. I will get on a soapbox if you want about New Year's resolutions. <laughs> I don't. Nope. <laughs> We're good. Okay. I won't. <laughs> what? No, yeah, no, I don't do those. It doesn't even occur to me to try. I don't. Well, I thought we were just going to have a nice moment where we are going to talk about our New Year's resolution, so I won't talk about mine. No, you should. (laughs) You should. Oh, not that response. No, it's so funny. I know a lot of people who don't, and it's completely fine. It's been like two months since we've been on the horn here. What have you guys been up to? How's your holiday? How's your winter? All of the things. Holidays were good. Winter is freezing cold. We have about eight inches of snow on the ground. Nice. But we've really transitioned from like raising a baby to raising a toddler. You know, like now when we sing Wheels on the Bus, he knows all of the hand actions and wants to sing it over and over and over again or Eatsy Weensy Spider. It's a really fun stage, actually. Like we made breakfast this morning. We made pancakes. I don't know. It's just been a fun time. We were really hunkered down over the holidays and didn't go anywhere, just stayed at home. So it was kind of nice just to have the three of us hang out for a little while and have a pretty quiet holiday. So it's been good. Sounds amazing. I love hunkering down. It's my favorite part of the winter. (laughs) We do a lot of that in Iowa, especially when it doesn't get above freezing for months at a time. Yeah, for sure. I've heard about that. (laughs) Woods, what about you? I mean, we have cold weather now, um, but I'm hoping it's very temporary. Like a week's worth of winter is what I'm down for. I don't need any more than that. Uh, So other than that, we had a really nice warm holiday season. (laughs) So we've been reading a lot of books together, not because there's snow outside, just because we enjoy it. And we finished Harry Potter book five recently. We got to the part where... I was going to say spoiler alert, but really, it's been out for a while. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, serious dies. And my daughter's reaction was the best. She just was like, what, really? Did he actually die? And I was like, yeah, I'm really sorry. I remember being confused how he died too sure. like surely it's not because he just like falls sure, into this real. hole and you're like wait yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right right and it's so tragic like surely yeah. they wouldn't do that to poor harry potter again she just was like well why did the editor do that yes, well, the agreed. editor should not have allowed that that's ridiculous well you know what editor's gonna die someday too so and i was <laughs> like damn so we're coping with the pandemic still too oh and um it was really a reaction I feel like I'm taking into the new year. Not necessarily a resolution, but like, eh, you know what? No, that was a stupid decision. And I don't have to believe that that's true. <laughs> I like that attitude. I love it. We did a lot of hunkering down here, too, over the break. It was fantastic. Uh, we had a solid two weeks when the kids were out of school and the university was pretty much closed that we just didn't go anywhere and do much of anything. And I intentionally shut off my laptop, shut off like most communication with work. And it is glorious. For the first time, I'm going to say in like five years, I actually read a paper book by myself, not to the kids. Like, yes, yes, yes. I mean, yes. I read to my children, you guys. Okay. Um, actually, if we're being <laughs> honest, my husband does most of that, but that's fine. Um, he just has a really good reading voice, you know. And I read a book. It was fantastic. I just got engrossed in it. It wasn't anything like highfalutin or academic. It was just pure brain candy. It's called The Love Hypothesis. <laughs> it was like a rom-com in a book. It was lovely. It was light. It was fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I can't wait to reread it. Among many highlights, that was the thing I think maybe I was super – proud of that I made time to like intentionally read a super cheesy book and it was fantastic. Nice. <laughs> First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Jacob, what do you have for us on this lovely new year? So as my child has gotten older, the amount of reality television has gone down and the amount of cartoons has gone up dramatically. So sure. an inverse relationship, as some statisticians would say. Yes. Have you all seen the movie Encanto? Yes. If you haven't yet, I think that that describes family dynamics better than any movie that I've seen in, as far as I can remember, in the last year or so. I agree. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's based on a family. Uh, they had to flee their home originally, and the patriarch, the grandfather of this family, is tragically killed. But in that, a miracle happens, and this magic house appears. And then all of the siblings and grandkids get special magical powers, except for one granddaughter who the story really focuses on. I want to talk specifically about The Brother and probably one of the best songs from oh, yeah. uh, the movie. Agreed. We don't talk about Bruno. Bruno's gift is the ability to see the future. Everybody didn't like that gift because they would go, hey, Bruno, what's going to happen? And then he would say what's going to happen. And then it would happen and they would be really upset about it. 
So Bruno eventually leaves, disappears, and nobody talks about him anymore. But you come to find out that Bruno is actually living in the walls of the house. Spoiler and alert. On the family. That is a spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. Whereas my Harry Potter information, not so much. <laughs> what I think illustrates really well is how families organize themselves around secrets. Right? Even though Bruno was supposedly gone, disappeared, he was still present. I mean, physically in this case. But often when we don't talk about certain family members or when families organize around a secret, they start to engage in certain patterns of behavior that can get passed on for generations and nobody ever really reflects as to why because it becomes a taboo topic, mm. right? And so in the case with Bruno, you know, he became this taboo. We don't talk about him because he predicted the end, so to speak, of the family, even though I won't give away any more spoilers. But what I love about this is it shows how you can kind of break that cycle of family secrets and how by bringing somebody back in, by talking about those things that have happened, the family can be reorganized and build something bigger, better, and more beautiful, which I think is really the storyline of Encanto. So if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend and really pay attention to how the family organizes itself around a secret and then what it does to shift away from that. In that shift comes this powerful transformation in the family. I see this frequently in my practice where families who have organized themselves and their relationships around a secret, once they can learn to talk about it and it doesn't carry so much weight and importance, the freedom and the flexibility they have to be themselves in relationships really changes. Mm -hmm. The music in Encanto by Lin-Manuel Miranda is fabulous. Um, mm -hmm. I loved it. My wife loved it. Our son loved it. So go watch Encanto. It's just great. I agree. Yeah, it's a fun one. Go check it out. Um, and also another spoiler alert. Tune in next week because we have some hot takes on Encanto as well that I was going to bring. So I'm really excited with this through line of Encanto because it is an excellent movie. Ooh. Oh, no. I guess it's not a spoiler alert. It's like a teaser. <laughs> Whatever. Sure, sure, sure. Terms. Who needs them? <laughs> Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled Is Perceived Similarity More Than Assumed Similarity? An Interpersonal Path to Seeing Similarities Between Self and Others. My New Year's resolution, just a sidebar here, is going to be to see how dramatically I can read these titles. I was really appreciating okay. the non-verbals to go with the <laughs> dramatic reading of this research. I love it. <laughs> I just feel like it brings another level, you know? So yes. you're welcome, yeah. listeners. Were you a theater kid in high school, Patricia? Me? Me? Yeah. <laughs> Said no. with six question marks. Who was I dramatic? Not I. A hundred percent. Definitely I was. I was also in the band and the choir, like you name it. In terms of arts, I did it. Except for actual art. Like I can't draw. Um, that being said, I also can't like act, but it's fun to try. Back to our regularly scheduled program. This article was recently published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, written by Bradley Hughes at the University of Oregon, John Flournoy at Harvard, and Dr. Sanjay Srivastava at Oregon. These authors explore assumed similarity, 
our tendency to assume other people are more similar to us than they actually are. The authors explain that typically this has been described as a cognitive bias or an error towards assuming similarity that happens in our minds as we judge and interpret another person. We overestimate how similar other people are to ourselves by filling in the gaps of what we don't know with our own personality traits. How we see ourselves affects how we see other people. However, these researchers explain that how we perceive other people may not just occur in our minds, but it also influences our interpersonal interactions. In other words, how we see others is a dynamic reactive process. Our personalities are expressed in how we behave towards other people and how we behave towards others elicits behavior from other partners that we then perceive and use to form judgments about them. So it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. This makes sense. For example, as a really extroverted outgoing personality, question mark, I bring out more extroverted behaviors from Sarah than she might otherwise usually show as exemplified by this podcast that I forced her to be a part of. Um, and she may be more comfortable talking to new people or making small talk. Is that true? How fantastic. Um. Sarah, who is especially conscientious, brings out more conscientious behavior from me, and I become a bit more detail-oriented, which is true, or I think what is also more accurate is I just realize how detail-oriented I am not. When we spend time together, we then observe these behaviors and continue to form impressions of each other where we decide we're more similar to each other than we might otherwise be. In other words, we mutually influence each other and that influence affects how we perceive each other's personality and our similarity. Very fantastic. Um, I just think that Sarah and I just became best friends in that. Again, so, all again, over again. Yeah, yeah, that just happened again. <laughs> Um, although we agree, I'm just this silly left out at the moment. I'm sorry. Here. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't bring out anything in anybody. That's it's the really neurotic the trait. Careful, careful. That's neuroticism, <laughs> and we don't want any of that. <laughs> um, you're right, Jacob. This is all about you. You're right. I forgot. This podcast is about Jacob. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> although we agree, this all makes very good sense. Researchers have yet to study the relationship process between people that drive how these impressions are made. Well, these researchers are on it. They're on the case. Sarah, we are extremely similar as we just described. So I am really looking forward to your telling us just how they did this research and hoping to explain our similarities process better. Yes, absolutely. Uh, of course, there are five personality traits. Um, I'm not a personality researcher, and many of our listeners may be quite familiar with what the five personality traits are. Sometimes referred to as the big five. The big five. The big five. <laughs> Super important. Um, so they focus, especially on extroversion, which Patricia is demonstrating really well. They also are looking at agreeableness, which is this personality trait that is really about being pro-social and being inclined to help others and compassion and trust. They also explore the impact of openness, which is the personality trait that represents creativity and curiosity and being really eager to learn and experience new things. And conscientiousness and neuroticism as well, but 
but less so the case. They had not anything necessarily specific to predict about how those personality traits might show up in these interactions. But they explored this interactional process that drives how we form impressions of how similar other people are by doing a lab-based experiment. They had 161 pairs of participants. So these Mm. dyads didn't know each other. Um, An average age, 20 years old. So my guess is they're sort of driven from recruiting from an undergraduate sample. Yeah, that's what 63% women, 64% white. So the day before this lab-based task that I'm going to describe, the participants each completed surveys describing their personality traits and their interpersonal style. So when they interact with other people, do they tend to be more submissive, more dominant, more agreeable? The fourth subscale, which I had never heard this word ever, and I love it, was quarrelsomeness. (laughs) I know. Do I tend to get in interactions and become very quarrelsome? It sounds very British. Does it's very fancy way to say it would be a term used in like Pride and Prejudice? Oh yes, right. Uh, I could not possibly marry him. He's full of quarrelsomeness. So when the participants got to the lab. They were assigned a partner that they'd not met before, um, and they were engaged in art gallery task. I just love this so much. The creativity, I love art galleries. I know. I feel like uh, social psychologists come up with when they do these experiments is just brilliant. It's so fun. So they were placed in a lab room together and given 20 minutes. They were told to assume the role of co-managers of an mm. art gallery. And there were 20 paintings uh, face down on a table. And their job as co-managers were to select three of the 20 paintings to hang in the gallery. So they had to take turns flipping over one painting at a time and discussing with each other what they liked or what they didn't like about the painting. And then making sure that both of them had a turn. So if I went first, then my interaction partner has an opportunity to say what they like or don't like about the painting. So after discussing all 20, then they're told to use any criteria that they choose to select the three that they would like to hang in their fictional art gallery. To make sure that participants were engaged and motivated to have these conversations, they were also told that there was a $100 prize for the (gasps) team that selected the best three paintings to make sure that they um, engaged. Yeah, really interesting. Um, And so they did that for 20 minutes. They all spent 20 minutes together as co-managers of a fictional art gallery. Um, And then afterwards, those participants rated their partners using the same self-report surveys that they had completed the day prior Mm. describing themselves. So they're rating their partner's personality traits, their partner's interpersonal behavior. And all of these interactions were video recorded. So they had trained coders who then coded the behavior that was expressed. But what was interesting was they edited the video so that each coder could only see one of the participants. They could hear both of them. They could only see one. So they were coding just that one participant using, again, the same scales as a self-report surveys. Coding the person I observed exhibited this personality trait and this behavior and uh, this um, interpersonal style, et cetera. So then they had essentially three different kinds of information, right? Reports about myself, reports about my perception of my partner, uh, my partner's perceptions of me, et cetera, as well as um, the video recording, that coded behavior. So what they found at a baseline, right, our self-reported traits impact our own behavior. What the behavior observed in ourselves are match how we describe our personality. So especially true about openness. Uh, it was less so about extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and not at all true about neuroticism, which I don't know which direction that went. Like if I say I'm super neurotic, but I show up to the task and I'm just like really super agreeable or not remotely anxious. I don't really know how that works, but I like it a lot because I hope that's the direction. The other direction would be also super fun. I'm not at all neurotic. And you show up and you're like, geez. Uh, so <laughs> what 
they Holy found Moses. was that some of these personality traits did impact or related to how your partner behaved in the task. So fascinating. So if I express extroversion, specifically they looked at how sociable the participant was, it elicited that a similar sociability in their partner, they would express sociability. They also found that if I expressed assertiveness, it elicited dissimilar behavior, which is what they predicted. The more assertive I am, the less assertive my partner is sort of backing out a bit, right? They're going to be less driven, uh, which is what they predicted. Some of these characteristics are saying you're not going to necessarily drive, um, which is good, right? That's adaptive behavior is how I interpret that. If we're both going in there and the more assertive you get, the more assertive I get. I mean, it's going to be, it's a lot, right? Escalation. Um, So, right. So you see some of this complementary, dissimilar behavior. The more expressed in my behavior, the more openness my partner, the more behavior that they expressed that looked like openness. Neuroticism also was associated. So the more I expressed neurotic behaviors, especially depression, the more you saw that from a partner, whereas anxiety and emotional volatility elicited dissimilar behavior. So if you were more anxious, your partner showed less anxious behavior. Oh, interesting. Interesting. They try to control the situation. I feel like it goes up for me. With somebody who's sort of anxious and neurotic, I feel like, which is a really great trait for a therapist, by the way. Just really. Well, no, I think it's interesting. I wonder if they did like blood pressure or measured like physiological response. They did not, but that is really They would have seen it because I wonder if like the behavior, they're trying to like de-escalate the situation, but internally their anxiety is increasing. Yeah, that's a really good question. They did not so far as I know, or it wasn't reported in this study, but it is really interesting to sort of think about what could be going on, especially emotional volatility. So they also formed realistic impressions of their partner's behavior. So when the partner's behavior was coded as extroversion, then the partner did self-report, did describe that their partner was more extroverted. So it was fairly accurate. And self-reported traits were then associated with how they perceived their partner. So if I saw myself as fairly agreeable. I also then later rated my partner as fairly agreeable, regardless of how their partner behaved, which is that assumed similarity cognitive piece. But on top of that, they also found that how I behaved changed or was related to the behavior that was expressed in my partner back and forth in these dyads. Mm. So they looked at what they called double mediation, which is this back and forth pathway they're talking about. And they found support that my personality influences my perception of other people, but that that is through my expression of my personality traits, which then elicits similar or dissimilar behavior from my partner. And then subsequently after that, I then report an accurate perception of that behavior. So there is some assumed similarity, but also there is this influence that these dyads had on each other, which I think is really interesting. Interesting. It's a really cool way to demonstrate this micro level process of how relationships work, especially yeah. in these otherwise strangers. Where they're forming, yeah. Yeah, yeah. relationship formation, right. Um, so I do think the fact that it was a stranger dyad is, I would describe it as a limitation. That was their goal to do it that way, but meaning I would be really interested to see how this happens in established relationships. That's what I wrote right? down too. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. <laughs> Also, we may be seeing like lab-based task-specific effects, right? Right, of course. They found some really strong findings for openness across the board and all these different pieces that they looked at. And part of what they themselves describe is that this art gallery task, because you're sort of potentially driving some of these openness findings. The more open-minded I am in doing this new task with this new person, it's sort of driven maybe by context, 
which yes, is a limitation and also really, really important, right? They're sort of scaling up from this internal intrapsychic process, how we make judgments about people to thinking about this as a relational process. But I think, right, this task-specific effect, this contextual effect that they're saying, the art gallery drove openness is also reason then to look at how this relationship process is driven by the context we're in. If I do this with somebody I work Mm -hmm. with, it's going to look different than if I do it with my husband, where obviously the three paintings I choose are the best paintings no matter what. (laughs) That's the criteria. (laughs) And there's my neuroticism uh, and emotional volatility. (laughs) So they were also motivated through promise of a prize, uh, which is sort of interesting. Um, And so I don't know how this replicates in the real world. Uh, That wasn't necessarily the author's goal here, but I am curious about how it replicates in the real world. So I think the interesting takeaway that I was really drawn to in this paper is that we bring out the best in others. We at least sort of bring out what we know to be true about ourselves. Um, And that's really important because I think that it means that how we view others is affected by how we view ourselves. And that changes as we interact with each other. We influence each other when we are interacting. And so also, I just wonder if a possible takeaway is that it can be helpful to be open-minded in our opinion of others. Um, Sometimes people get really stuck in their judgments of other people and have sort of a one-dimensional view of a person. But if I interact with them and potentially part of what I'm seeing that I don't like is driven by what I'm bringing to the table, then it would be valuable to have more non-judgmental stance in meeting people and forming relationships, but also in maintaining relationships. So um, I thought this study has a lot of cool possible implications for how we understand relationship interactions. Yeah, I agree. This is a really great find. The method that they use to code people separately really fascinates me. I'd love to see that with like in couples therapy or like see how it could be extended to other dyads too. I think it has a lot of promise. I personally haven't seen couple interactions being coded this way. I don't know if either of you have or intentionally coded this way exactly. I don't think so. So I think when like family level behavior is coded or couple level behavior is coded, it doesn't happen very often in the literature right. in terms of what yeah. you're talking about, in terms of the couple or family therapy context. Um, but it's absolutely something that should be happening more, especially as we think about the change process, intentionally shifting interactions in therapy. Yeah. I think what you're describing is super important. It could be really, really cool. And I'm just thinking personally, we have some video currently, so maybe we could try it at some point. Oh, for your own research studies? Yeah. Oh, yes. Very. <laughs> you already, were you making notes? I'm like, uh-huh. oh, this Full is on. a very cool study. And also, what does this mean for my own research? This mean for my personal you know research. What, is that not like the highest compliment for these researchers too? Hopefully. Like, your work is so cool. It instantly inspires me to think about how I could do some of my own work differently. Yeah. So super, super cool work. As far as I could tell, the first two authors are students, uh, research assistants. Even cooler. Sort of thing. I wow. write. I know the creativity. It's just yeah, blows my odd mind. to be young again. <laughs> odd to be uh, young and have um, time available to think abstractly. Ah, oh, yes, I know. that's right. Um, I, to be able to I, have that, I, I will just steal their ideas. <laughs> I don't know if the personality trait of openness is actually tied to youth, but I feel like that's what I'm perceiving here. A dissimilarity between myself and the incredible brilliance and openness of these authors. Of these authors. Well, that leads me to my next thought that I had is like, I love this finding about openness. It has been on my mind for a while, like trying to be 
intentional of being more like giving and open in relationships, you know, with strangers and people out and about. Usually I'm just like, F off. I'm just going to do my yeah. own thing. No, I know it's, it's not healthy. Right I know there, it's so not it's... healthy, but it's something I've been trying to like realize like, you know, 10 years ago, I used to like be able to get along with people better. Uh, now people just annoy me. So <laughs> listen. Oh my gosh. These are just truths. I'm sorry. Don't it has quickly evolved to your own therapy. I, I did not know. even study to elicit this behavior out of you. I don't know what's happening. Anyway, it just reminded me that, like, me trying to be more intentional about being, uh, you know, open with people, whatever. Sure. <laughs> Agreeable. Agre Compassionate. Maybe not agreeable, like people are wrong and I'm right. But, like, <laughs> That's the openness I part, I think, is, like, I was just trying to, like, be more, like, open to like talking to it. people i got it whatever <laughs> oh i'm gonna be more introverted after this conversation i think that's what's gonna happen you're driving me back oh I no <laughs> we're demonstrating back. the opposite <sighs> is it because i was too aggressive is that what happened the anxious mm. bit no it wasn't that <laughs> <laughs> Great research overall. Really, really cool. Didn't mean to put it into a dark spot. I'm really excited about being more open with people. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows, and we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and all those numerous top 10 lists. But you guys are going to be shocked by this. A lot of it just isn't actually good advice, and it's not good for our relationships. What? I know. What? I know. So this is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, not just spouting off the top of your head like I just did about openness, um, to decide <laughs> if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook, you know, all those social media apps that the kids are using these days at Attached Podcast or go to attachpodcast.com, a wonderful website. Um, so I hear and send us a message. While you're at it, please rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. And of course, as always, share it slash force it upon a loved one. You know they want to hear this. Force Whatever term you need. Um, sure. You just take it. That's you. You do it. You do it. We're proud of you. We're so proud of you. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about a variety of advice from social media. You guys know how much I love social media. Some may say I'm on it too often, but I say nay. I have a podcast I have to provide data for. It's for work. It's Just, for work. So enough of that negativity you guys are spewing at me. This is not cognitive. It's not in my head. Or maybe it is. So. Wow. Am I talking wow. to myself too much? I'm really no. sorry. Nope. It's like a normal amount of talking to myself. It's, oh, it's a normal amount. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad you guys are so supportive. So. That's why we're here. We're here to support okay. you. Um, I appreciate it. I need it a lot. So as we've established at the beginning of this podcast, it's a new year. And 2022 may already seem like a bit of a doozy for some people. I'm not going to name any names. 
It's me. <laughs> also me. <laughs> also. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so here's a potential way to cope with 2022 thus far. Sit with me here, but 2022 is going to be the booty call of years. Like if a year could be friends with benefits, 2022 would be that year. Because let me tell you something. I think I speak for everyone when I say this year is clearly not the one. Right. Like this is not going to be our year. We're only 10 days into this thing and it's been nothing but red flags so far. Like if this was a first date, it's like 2022 said, nice to meet you. I don't understand why everyone doesn't clap when the plane lands and then launched into a rant about how nobody likes nice guys anymore. And then for dinner, it ordered a burrito and ate it from the middle like an animal. And that's just not how you act in a civilized <laughs> society. And so, look, I think we have two options here, right? So we can get really mad about this or we could accept it for what it is, a major bullet dodged. Because 2022 did this magical thing where it told you it was a piece of shit right up front. And now you don't have to waste the time and energy trying to make it your year. Instead, you could just have fun with it. You know what I mean? Embrace the chaos. 2022 is never going to be marriage material. But when it texts you up eggplant emoji at 3 a.m., you can maybe let it come over if you wanted it to. You know, in the same way that I wouldn't commute to work on a jet ski, right? But on a sunny weekend in July, I'd take it for a ride. <laughs> that was Andrew on TikTok. Very, very, very funny uh, fella. So good advice about how we should approach 2022. Jacob? I thought that was hilarious and wonderful. And what a good analogy. I think it's important that we find some flexibility and adaptability, especially when there's things that are outside of our control, like a pandemic. And also he's hilarious. I should get on TikTok just to follow him. Oh yeah, he's fantastic. I follow him. He's a lawyer, so he also just can like pontificate on that level. All of his videos are like that. You're just like, what is coming next? It's amazing. So good advice from Jacob Woods. Yes, I saw someone tweet the other day that they had tried the 14 day trial of 2022 and they'd like to return it. They'd like their money back because it already wasn't working. Oh my gosh. And this is a much better like relational metaphor of when there's a lot of red flags, lower your expectations and don't commit for life. I agree. Mm -hmm. I think, I guess that's why I don't do New Year's resolutions. <laughs> I don't want to have hopes and dreams so early on. A circle. I go, go crushed. Yeah. That's not science, by the way. That's just my own I, I just feel fears. like that clip, I don't want to have hopes and dreams, should not be taken out of context for oh, the record. Sure. <laughs> It was that depression trait, the neuroticism. It was coming right back up again. Jacob did that to me. That's what's happening. So Jacob creates depression in us? Is that what I just heard? No, his, neuro his neurotic traits. Oh, his neurotic, neurotic traits. Okay. Right. So great advice, I think, I'm hearing from Andrew. Here's another potential take on 2022 from Twitter to help people cope. Um, this is actually one that Sarah kindly sent to me from Ivan Coyote. I've officially run out of enough serenity to accept the things I cannot change. There's simply just not enough fucking serenity to be had at this point. Maybe this is a supply chain issue thing too. I don't know. So good or bad advice, Jacob. Um, now that you know we both laughed about this, I'm just curious what you think. <laughs> 
<laughs> Good advice. I like that. If you're not familiar, this hoping for serenity of things you cannot change comes from 12-step programs. And the last I read about it, there's not a lot of great evidence for 12-step programs. A lot of people find them useful, but not all people. So that's just the side note science takes. Sometimes I have a difficulty with these 12-step programs and kind of what they promise and what they expect. But sure. I agree with this take. You know, like sometimes you just can't have serenity. And the expectation is that like, okay, I'm not going to be able to control these things. So I'm just going to be at peace is bullshit. Sometimes you're going to yeah. have really shitty days and that's okay. Fully. It sounds like sometimes it can easily venture into toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. Woods? So it is a serenity prayer in its original form, which is what Jacob's describing, right? This uh, serenity to accept the things I can't change, encourage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. difference. Mm -hmm. An adapted, non-faith-oriented version is also uh, used in dialectical behavior therapy, which is an approach that has a lot of evidence. So I will point counterpoint (laughs) Jacob's evidence. (laughs) (laughs) But not having enough serenity to accept the things you cannot change is either meaning you're getting fired up to help create change or you're just angry. And that honestly, it just sounds like wisdom. They know the difference. So it's not science, but I fully support it. (laughs) (laughs) So good advice from both of us. I also love how, how he just throws in like, supply chain issues because it's like supply everything chain. could be blamed on so supply much. chain um side so note guess whose car has been in the shop for the past oh, two yeah. months because of supply chain issues oh. wow <laughs> um it's still there not going to be done until the beginning of february so really exciting times here Ooh. in uh, my household but yeah blame everything on the supply chain i'm here for it So this next tip is for coping with 2022. I can't believe how many twos are in that number. From a therapist, for therapists potentially, to give clients, this is from Therapy Jeff on, you guessed it. Therapy Jeff, what a good name. The ticks and the talk. There is no amount of breathing exercises, meditation, self-care, or even therapy for that matter that will bring you peace and happiness during this chaotic and fucked up time in history. I just want to throw that out there. Doing journaling or yoga could help you tolerate things, but it's not going to fix the underlying problem that's creating anxiety. There's a systemic problem in our government, corporations, and all the people in power are ignoring it. As a therapist, as much as I'd like to solve your problem of being overworked and underpaid, I can't do anything about it. And while taking medication to improve your mental health is a great idea, it's not going to get you out of poverty. How often have you been like, I just need to get through this week? Has it been every week for the past two years? Mm. That is fucked up and not normal. You're living through trauma right now. In order to heal your trauma, you first need to feel safe. Every therapist knows this. We can't do our work until the system changes so that you can feel safe enough to process your trauma. I'm sorry if you're more depressed right now. I'm just trying to give you some context and validation. All right. You guys both started actively nodding uh, during that entire thing. (laughs) Our best therapist Um, selves. Uh, Jacob, good or bad advice? Great advice. Mm. I think that historically therapy has viewed this, hey, if you just meditate, journal, then you don't have to worry about systemic change. Just tolerate what's going on. And that's been the approach. And I think we've let a lot of clients down because of that, right? The fact is that I tell my students, and this is what I believe, like, if you aren't actively as a therapist trying to change structures to use the power you have to push against structures that maintain these cycles and systems of 
stress and inequity and all that stuff. Then trauma, like not, things that produce mm-hmm. trauma in people. Yeah. Yeah, you're not doing your job. Um, mm-hmm. I want to plug a book that I think all therapists should read. It's called okay. Socioculturally Attuned Family Therapy Ooh. by mm-hmm. Teresa McDowell, Carmen Knudsen-Martin, mm-hmm. and Maria Bermudez. And mm-hmm. what they do is they take models of family therapy and they talk about how you can help clients think about what they call third order change or pushing mm-hmm. against those systems of oppression. And I make all my students read it because it really mm-hmm. moves beyond this idea of like, okay, let's just get this person to be able to tolerate this or get this couple not to fight anymore. And really thinking about those larger systemic factors that need to be changed in order for people to have close connections, relationships, and good mental health. So excellent advice, Therapy Jeff. Wonderful. We love you, Therapy Jeff. Woods? Yeah, I agree. It's beautiful, fantastic, totally needed advice. I'm finding myself saying a version of this multiple times a week, Uh, not just to patients, uh, to everybody, to myself. To myself. (laughs) Texting it to yourself. (laughs) It's like a real Leslie Note mood. (laughs) Oh, Sarah, this is Sarah. You're doing a great job. Hold it there. It's a version of the serenity prayer, right? Part of what he's saying is that there is so much you cannot change. And that's not on you. You have to know the difference between what you can change and what you can't. And no amount of deep breathing is going to change the fact that we've been living through nonstop trauma for two years. What it's done to our bodies, what it's done to our minds, what it's done to our relationships, what it's done to every aspect of our life. It's not some small isolated trauma, which is often how we try to talk about trauma. Like it's a singular trauma. That's not what this is. And so part of what he talks about is that those skills are for tolerating the stress. And that is also part of dialectical behavior therapy, this idea that along with many other types of therapies, but how powerful and necessary it is that when you are in a very high stress situation, part of how you protect yourself and survive that in the moment is to tolerate the stress, to soothe yourself, to find meaning where you can, to focus on relaxation, to take care of your body in little ways as much as possible, and that that is all to tolerate the stress. It's not to change these systems that are failing people on the regular. And that is super, super important. I would imagine that people didn't hear that message and feel more depressed i imagine that they heard the validation and that was really lovely yeah i agree great Great. advice um i see that he and i are quite similar actually (laughs) since we're a big fan of therapy jeff just so i just i can't wait for him to uh (laughs) join the pot and maybe we can do like an art project together or something and just like build on our similarities oh he's probably quite conscientious you might say he might be also very open you might say I'm sure he's going to love us simping after him. Changing focus away from 2022. Um, Next, from TikTok, a woman talking about how she and her husband have stayed married for, I think she said, 11 years. I married really young, and statistically, my marriage was over before it even started. We were both from divorced homes. We were teen parents. We were both under the age of 18. He was joining the military, and like statistically, there's just a bunch of things that add up to y'all are getting divorced. But he asked and I wanted to say yes. So I did and I told him I could promise him a year and not a lifetime because I was 17 and who the fuck knows what they want when they're 17. 
So every year on our anniversary, we decide if we're staying married for another year or if we're getting divorced that year. And I got a lot of shit for it 21 years ago. Um, 21 years ago, sorry. But it was 21 years ago. And this August is our 22nd wedding anniversary. So I would say it worked out pretty well. Um, choose to re-up every year. So I got that number completely wrong. It was 21 years together. So thoughts, good or bad advice for the general? Obviously, it worked for them or has up to this point, but re-upping every year. Uh, I'm not necessarily asking good or bad advice of getting married at 17. It's the good or bad advice for re-upping every year. What do you guys think, Jacob? I like this idea of kind of like recommitting, like refocusing and doing that. I kind of feel like it's a little bit black and white in this idea of like, are we staying married or are we getting divorced? Mm -hmm. right? like, Interesting. I get the sense too of maybe doing that at 17 because yeah, at 17, I didn't know what my life was going to look like a year. So I think that after some time, hopefully it doesn't have to be as stark as like, hey, you know what? I got a little bit distracted from our relationship this year. I'm going to refocus a little bit and make sure I'm putting my priorities where I want them to be. Or, I mean, having the conversation, I think, every year of like, all right, so we stay married or are we going to get divorced? Really kind of shows, I think, is a little polarizing. So the main concept is good of trying to engage again in that commitment because we know commitment is really important to long-term relationships, right? Yeah. It can predict like stability and continuity of relationships. I also a little bit hesitant to fully endorse it just because of the starkness of like stay married or get divorced. But... Overall, I think it's pretty good advice. Okay, so overall, good advice with um, some caution, some caution tape around that uh, endorsement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Woods? So it reminds me of this phenomenon that um, like Scott Stanley talks about, the slide sliding versus deciding. My that, favorite. Um, it sounds sort of like early in the relationship, they were maybe sliding pretty quickly into mm. um, a pretty intense relationship commitment to make at that age. And part of how it sounds like, at least in her frame, part of how they have compensated for that moving really quickly at the start and lots and lots of upfront inertia is more intentional decisions mm -hmm. from there on out, which is, she's right, it is potentially how they're countering some of the statistical likelihood that their marriage might not otherwise have made it. Statistics would not have said the relationship was over before it started, but she is yeah. describing a lot yeah. of risk factors for that relationship not lasting. Uh, I agree with Jacob that it being black or white is no. not necessarily helpful. My guess is that's probably also not what it looks like in real life for yeah. them. My guess is that each year they're doing a really intentional conversation about where their relationship is and where they want it to go and um, sort of an intentional recommitment, which I think is positive. I got together with my spouse at 16 and we've been married for 21 years also. So, yeah. no, wait, we haven't been married for 21 years. Wait, what year is this? Oh, no, no, no. 22. <laughs> we've been together 21 years. <laughs> my apologies. That's what I meant to say. We've been married for, oh my God, don't tell my husband. I have no idea. Seven years. No, wait. What? 14 years. <laughs> oh my God. I was going to say, like, Sarah, I've known years. you for longer than seven years and you were definitely married before I met you. <laughs> I'm the one that's responsible for breaking down the stats of that academic section. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Jesse's not listening, I'm sure. We won't worry about that. <laughs> so my anecdote didn't help in terms of math or it made us in laugh, terms of though. being an anecdote. So a commitment. <laughs> commitment, but not necessarily tracking that commitment. I am for it. 
We obviously intentionally recommit every year. How long's it been? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Might as well a while. Uh, so the next one is a tip of the day with a tip of the hat. Advice from a sister and brother. The brother has autism and they do tips of the day. This is on TikTok and I just am wondering good or bad advice. Do you know what we haven't done in a really long time? What? We haven't done a tip of the day. That's right. We haven't done tip of the day in a really long time. Well, that's changing today. Yep. So what's the tip of the day? Today's tip of the day is, even if you think a baby looks ugly or has an unflattering feature, uh-huh. don't mention it. True. This sort of remark can be very hurtful and serves no good purpose. I agree. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to tell a parent that their kid's ugly. Or baby. Yeah, that too. You don't want to tell a parent that their baby's ugly. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Yeah, that. That can hurt the parents' feelings. That's not very nice, is it? Uh-huh. That's just something that you can tell a friend later. Yeah. Not to hurt, not... Yeah. yeah, you can say that, like, to a friend or your sibling, like, in private. Exactly. Just, that's like a private thing. It's a private conversation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thank you for the tip of the day. No problem. All right. Tip of the day, don't tell parents if their baby's ugly. Good or bad advice? Uh, I love them. I know. Like, they're fantastic. What a cool sibling couple. A couple. Sibling dyad. <laughs> I don't know. Um, great advice. <laughs> don't tell parents their kids are ugly, even if they are. And then tell somebody you love and you're close to later, like... Oh, so man, did you see that, that ugly baby? <laughs> because then it makes for good uh, telling of stories and sharing. Like, I saw the ugliest baby. Yeah. I didn't tell you about it. <laughs> I'm all for it. So, great advice. Great advice from Jacob Woods. I agree. It's so sweet and adorable and totally science-based advice. Nobody likes to hear that their baby is ugly. Everybody believes that their baby is beautiful. And they are. And they are, at least to your face, they are, apparently, according to this advice. It. So overall, good advice. And what an absolutely lovely sibling pair, I would call them. Last but not least, um, we have um, some, maybe not advice, but some pontification from Andrew Garfield, who has been making a resurgence in this. Spider-Man. And the media yesterday, Tick, Tick, Boom, also fabulous oh, sure, uh, sure, movie sure. I recommend. Um, for some reason, people are realizing that Andrew Garfield is super hot and amazing. Um, for the record, I've known this for a really long time. Oh, okay. For some reason, they're just now they're just now They're just now coming to it. I got it. Um, I but got anyway, it. this is... Because um, you don't want to call somebody's child ugly. We just got done with that. No, yeah, I think <laughs> sure, he's sure, sure. lovely to look at and also very talented. But anyway, this is some of his take on love. Yes, I do believe in love at first sight, but I also believe that you would love absolutely anybody if you knew their story. I also believe that the modern notion of romantic love is seriously misguided and it creates a lot of problems in our modern world. I believe that we need to re-evaluate this idea that we have of the nuclear family, this idea that we have of 2.4 children, this idea that we have that it's Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. I believe that um, it's possible for all of us to be in love all the time with ourselves and with everyone around us. Adam Garfield, good or bad advice? Not Adam, Adam Garfield. Garfield. <laughs> 
It's because he said Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. The A's, my brain sometimes doesn't work well. Just so you guys know. I mean, you guys already know this. Uh, but for everybody out there. Good or bad advice, so, chicken. I want to parcel some of this because I think there's some really good points in there, right? Yeah. Like this idea of... You know, thinking of the family as just the nuclear family and not that we need uh, other members and community support to raise a family is great advice. Um, the supporting of being able to people to love and marry who they want to love and marry, also great advice. There was one part in there, you will love everybody if you know their story. I can see some of that, but mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily a requirement. Like Mm. some people you just aren't going to get along with and that's okay, Mm. right? Like you may not love them. You may not be able to extend that. You're like, okay, I don't need you in my life and that's okay to me. I do think it's important to listen to people's stories, but the expectation is that we can love everyone, I think is a little far-fetched and a little bit out there, but everything else you say, I would say is good advice. All right. For the most part, we're saying good advice. Some of it is maybe a little fanciful, but good for him for living in A little like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. One might say. One might say, or in like a Broadway fantasy film, like Tick, Tick, Mm. Boom. Woods? Uh, Yeah, I would say this is good advice. I do think that um, learning somebody else's story um, is a really powerful way to like them, to get to know them, maybe to love them, not necessarily romantic love, but increasing the breadth and depth of what we know about somebody is a really reliable way to build a relationship so I think that's lovely. I always forget he has an accent. Same with the other Spider-Man, Tom Holland. Man, I forget they have accents until Such I see like interviews and you're like, oh my God. Such good actors, am I right? It's times 10, right, exactly. And I would agree with him too that a lot of sort of popular uh, culture around relationships and families is really very outdated uh, gender-based stereotypes mm. about how we create families and it's not actually what is necessarily um, successful and it's not mm. actually necessarily how families actually look today yeah. uh, and so holding for that a long as a standard time. is really problematic right because couples that um, follow more sort of stringent gender stereotypes tend to have less satisfying relationships. Uh, So it's not even a good expectation or standard to have uh, in terms of relationships that even if they look more like a typical um, stereotype, uh, as he's describing, they're not necessarily happier inside. Uh, So yeah, lots of good advice from a very talented actor. Very talented. So much talent in like one little person. All I see is the CV, you know? That's what I say. (laughs) Same. I value him for his talent. Mm -hmm. As always and forever, thank you for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on all those social medias about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.